May I thank the Council of the University of Melbourne for conferring upon me the honorary degree of Doctor of Laws, and may I thank you, Chancellor, for your very kind words of introduction. A Chancellor, a last Chancellor, Dear Chancellor, Vice Chancellor, distinguished guests, dear friends, may I begin before I deliver my paper, The Economic Debate from the Great Famine to Today, the Australian Irish Dimension, by acknowledging that we meet today on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people, and may I thus pay my respect to their elders, both past and present. Agus Maragut Meren Gidol Shias Islim Lam, Buikas Okriya Gawala Kola Alskal Melvan, Osan Kim Onyksha Vranakaram, Agus Islim Mawikas Agwalyatsa Yanshler, Agus and Lakta Toyloher, Asatan Firkin Folchershop. As a university teacher for many years in my former life, it is always a very great pleasure to return to a university setting. As President of Ireland, it is a very particular honour to address you today in this city and in this state, which has perhaps more than any other exhibited a distinctive Irish influence. And perhaps too, more than any other state, Victoria has absorbed the full spectrum of Irish society in all its different manifestations of migration, voluntary and involuntary, and presentations of itself to contemporary Ireland in the modern period. In the earliest years of European colonisation, Port Philip society was marked by the presence of what were representatives of an Anglo-Irish aristocracy on the move, as it were, often referred to as the Irish cousinage, who sought to import their self-perceived social standing, wealth, and at times, indeed, their vanities, pursuing an inclination to recreate a mythic lifestyle and mores of the Irish 18th century Protestant ascendancy. And this could manifest itself on occasion as disdain for the forms of English society that were seeking to establish themselves in the new colonies. <clears throat> it was much more than a contest of aesthetics. The discovery of gold in the later 19th century brought with it not only a rush of immigrants, but within it emerged a new middle-class Irish element, Overwhelmingly Anglican and predominantly educated at Trinity College Dublin, these lawyers, doctors, merchants and engineers felt that they could in this new world create the liberal, though not necessarily democratic, polity denied to them in Ireland. And thus they took up leading positions and gave form to the juridical, academic and political life of the new colony of Victoria. It was in the second part of the 19th century, however, that the operation of the Land and Immigration Commissioners and assisted migration brought the largest element of the Irish population, farmers, agrarian labourers and tradespeople, most often followers of the Catholic faith, to this city and to Geelong, and from there often onwards to cultivate land in the environs of Melbourne to Ballarat or Bendigo, and then at the lure of gold, and as European encroachment continued, to the Wimmera wheat belt. And as Chancellor has said, since its inception, reflected 
this university has reflected all the various strands of Irish influence, from your very first Chancellor, Sir Redmond Barry, who arrived in New South Wales as a young lawyer only newly called to the Irish Bar, to Newman College, which owes its foundation, of course, to the efforts of Archbishops Carr and Mannix, and to the generosity of Thomas Donovan and the Catholic parishioners of Melbourne. This link has been given a contemporary expression, which I very much welcome in the establishment of the Jerry Higgins Chair in Irish Studies, which plays such an important role in promoting and sustaining the study of arts and culture, literature and music, politics and history of both Ireland and of the Irish in Australia. As someone who has taken a deep interest in the development of economics as an academic discipline, and its influence on the formulation and administration of economic policy and the lives of peoples, I was particularly interested to learn that one of four foundation press professors in this university, three of whom had previously held academic positions in Ireland, was the Irish scholar of political economy and jurisprudence, William Edward Hearn, considered by another eminent Melbourne professor, Douglas Copland, as the first Australian economist. Before emigrating, William Edward Hearn had held the position of Professor of Greek in the newly opened Queen's College Galway, one of the three universities in Ireland founded under the Irish Colleges Act of 1845. I undertook my own undergraduate studies in what is now called National University of Ireland Galway, as you've heard, and indeed I had the privilege of being lecturer in sociology and politics there for many years. And indeed, it is the work of one of my colleagues there, the economist Tom Boylan, and his colleague and the intellectual historian Tyke Foley, which first drew my attention to Hearn. William Edward Hearn was part of an extraordinary generation of Irish political economists, all Anglo-Irish, with a similar intellectual, historical and moral formation to such men as Redmond Barry or George Higginbotham, two of the great influences on the legal, educational and institutional development of this state. For that generation, the most formative <coughs> historical event of their youth was not political. Despite the moral force of the cause of repeal of the union between Britain and Ireland, which in the person of Daniel O'Connell embodied the most advanced liberal positions of the day, but rather, at least to their eyes, the important critical project of the time was teasing out the assumptions that governed what was the economy, what was economic. That was the force of their critical debate. The f they were interested in what had formed the ideas that influenced the policies, that in turn stood behind the human devastation that was the Great Irish Famine of 1845 to 1852, or as we say in Irish, on which left nearly a million dead and led to a great wave of migration of over a million more, as people sought to flee hunger, starvation, and certain death. The issuing of any necessary declaration of grounding or domain assumption became the absolute tendency, the hubris, the tina of their day. Between the, con between the con may I just set the context just a little more? 
Between the conclusion of the Napoleonic War and the famine that I have mentioned of 1845 to 1850, political economy in Britain, and to a lesser extent Ireland, had moved away from its origins in that part of the Scottish Enlightenment. It had somehow, from the Adam Smith of the theory of moral sentiments, and his conception of humanity as bound together by what he called a common sympathy, what he wrote of as moral sentiments, it had changed to what had begun to be called something more economistic, and indeed with all the accompanying weaknesses, mechanistic understanding of human motivations. And this was characterised by the popularisers of the writing of David Ricardo, such as John Ramsay McCulloch, who had such an influence in the 1830s. What were, for Adam Smith, observations of tendencies had hardened for such writers into what were iron laws of nature, and the belief in not just the possibility but the inevitable universal application of these laws. And this manifested itself as a belief in the universality of the economic structure of England, such that any deviation from such a model or practice came to be seen as a symptom of under or maldevelopment. This, as I have said, was a kind of eschewing of any necessary declaration of grounding or domain assumptions. It became, as it were, the absolutist tendency, the hubris of its time, the Tina of its time, there is no alternative, a phrase we would hear again. As the great Irish historian of economics, R.D.C. Black, has chronicled, it was such a hegemonic perspective that political economists brought to bear on pre-famine Irish society. This society was seen as a product of the conflicts of the 17th century, was characterised by a large number of fragmented small holdings, many farmed on a subsistence basis. And at the peak of economic and legal relations, a small number of landlords who operated through estate managers or through middlemen or intermediate landlords who took full advantage of opportunities to further sublet land. Though observers, not least political economists, could not agree on what might have been the empirical causes of such circumstances or putative solutions, they could at least agree on the empirical fact that the lives of Irish cottiers and their families were precarious, particularly in the period between April to August, the starving season, when old stores of potatoes were exhausted and had yet to be replenished by the new crop. This precariousness grew as the agricultural boom of the years of the French wars gave way to periods of depressed grain prices and landlords, their agents and middlemen, in order to sustain or raise their income, began to raise rents. To the orthodox liberal political economist, the right of the landlord to his property was inviolable, and the relationship between tenant and landlord a matter of contract, immune to the demands of right, of justice, and a matter for none other than the tenant and the landlord. And though the theoretical base of the inviolability of property had changed from Lockean notions of property as a natural right to the Benthamite notion of property as a means to ensure that owners of capital would maximise the utility of capital, the policy recommendations and social outcomes remained the same. 
If the property was inviolable and the landlord-tenant relationship simply contractual, the only solution to Irish poverty lay in the mind of the political economist, offering the hegemonic theory of the day, in the rapid consolidation of Irish holdings, the creation of a class of medium and large-scale farmers, and the inevitable acceptance of the depopulation of the countryside, as courtiers and small farmers would, it was believed, emigrate, or if they remained, become available as hired labourers. This would not be the first time, nor would it be the last, that those economists inclined to hubris have, when confronted by the inapplicability of their existing theory to a social reality, demanded that social reality change to reflect the theoretical model. This is not, of course, at all to take from or diminish that occasional sympathy and humanitarian sentiment that surfaced at times, which was brought to bear on the Irish situation. The flaws of imposing a strategy for managing the poor, a strategy designed, after all, for industrial settings in a totally different setting, had been recognised. The Royal Commission on the Poorer Classes in Ireland had, all rec after all, recommended that the new Poor Law of 1834 which forced those in poverty into disciplinary workhouses should not be extended to Ireland. Instead, the Commission recommended a programme of public works and a scheme of assisted emigration as the most effective and convenient means to raise the income of Irish courtiers and to transform them from small proprietors to proto-industrial wage labourers. These recommendations were perceived as being too radical or more likely, they simply did not fit within the liberal political economy of the day. The institutions of the new market economy were viewed, after all, as I have said, as entirely natural in their operation. The functions and duties of government were viewed as likely to create a possible set of obstacles, or as wholly negative, and thus the new poor law was largely imposed, grafted, if you like, onto Ireland. The Anglican Archbishop of Dublin, Richard, Richard Whateley, who with his Catholic counterpart had sat on that commission, was particularly interested in the lessons and what he felt was the example of the new colony of South Australia. And he corresponded with Robert Torrens, another Irish political economist and disciple of Ricardo, and the champion of what was called a self-supporting colonisation which envisioned creating a class of small farmers in Australia. And despite the rejection of the report of the Royal Commission by the British government and the extension of the new poor law to Ireland, Torrens continued to champion Irish migration to South Australia, or as he later called it, the New Hibernia. He proposed the establishment of an Irish South Australian Immigration Society, which would raise funds from Irish landlords to purchase land in South Australia and pay for the transportation of their tenants to their new properties in the Southern Oceans, thus facilitating both the depopulation of overpopulated Ireland and the colonisation of Australia. It was Torrance's eldest son, Robert Richard Torrens, who prior to his short tenure as Premier of South Australia, gave the impetus for the development of the principle of title by registration, which originated in that state. I think it would be appropriate to note 
the immediate context of the development of the Torrens system of land registration, namely the chaotic issuance of land grants and subsequent speculation and rapid turnover of title in the South Australia of the 1830s and 1840s, which had led to great incoherence in property ownership and disputes regarding the title to the land. <clears throat> One of the defining principles of the Torrens system Indeed, the defining principle that allows the resolution of the kind of dispute that may arise in a context of fevered property speculation, something which regularly occurs, is the indefeasibility of title given to the registered proprietor or proprietors. There are, as we know, few exceptions to this indefeasibility, which may be nonetheless wide in potential scope and application. I would just like here to make, as I pass, a moral or ethical point rather than a legal point, namely that the Torrance system constituted at its inception part of the legal technology of empire by not only addressing or resolving a crisis of colonial speculation to which I've referred, but also by effectively extirpating any claim of title to the land by the first occupants, whose rights and enjoyment of their land, we should recall, were guaranteed by the letters patent authorising the colonisation of South Australia. I do not in this paper want to speculate what bearing the rejection of the doctrine of terra nullius and consequent recognition of native title by the High Court and their judgment in the second Mabo case would have in this situation, but only here to recognise what an important legal and moral milestone that it was. The context of the extension of the Torrent system to Ireland in 1891 was quite different. It was a response to the struggle for land ownership by Irish tenant farmers, which would in time be resolved through a series of acts of the British Parliament designed to finance the purchase and transfer of the landlord interest in the land. This required the removal of the vestiges of post-conquest property relations in Ireland, which had built up by accretion over centuries. Title by registration achieved this by severing those old ties, delivering to Irish tenant farmers freehold title unencumbered by the past. Let us think about the irony of history that is involved here. There is, I would suggest, an irony of history indeed, as the same legal technology was used at first to dispossess the first occupants of this land, and then in Ireland used to repossess albeit that such a repossession was accomplished only after a great exodus from Ireland, a repossession that would change the class system in Ireland, and when combined with electoral changes, be fundamental in defining both the impulses and the obstacles to independence, and indeed the marginalisation of egalitarian hopes. Such repossession was carried out in such a fashion as would in time favour the larger farmer, leading to the emergence of a new hegemonic grazier class. This repossession in Ireland was the outcome, as I've said, of a great political struggle for ownership of the land. The intellectual origins of this revolution in ownership of the land were based not on the prevailing political economy of the day, but rather on a contrarian belief based on a knowledge of and sympathy for the Irish courtier. As to economic theory, 
It was the leaders of Young Ireland, contemporaries and in some cases members of the same class and religion as Hearn, who, were, who had been transported to Tasmania for leading the Irish chapter in that great European movement for democracy and self-determination, the springtime of peoples of 1848. It was they who provided the most incisive criticism of the liberal laissez-faire political economy, which had contributed to and indeed formed the desultory response of the British government as the famine continued beyond Black 47, where death was accompanied by the export of food. Here I speak of such as James Fenton Lawler, the brother of the leader at the Eureka Stockade, Peter Lawler, who most forcibly assailed the central assumption of the sanctity of property in his letters to the Irish Felon, a radical newspaper of the time. James Fenton Nola wrote, I acknowledge no right of property vested in 8,000 persons, be they noble or ignoble, which takes away all rights of property, security, independence, and existence itself from a population of 8 millions, and stands in bar to all the political rights of this island and all the social rights of its inhabitants. I acknowledge no right of property which takes the food of millions and gives them a famine which denies to, denies to the peasant the right of a home and concedes in exchange the right of a workhouse. Charles Gavin Duffy, another leader of Young Ireland, editor of the Nation newspaper, and later Premier of this state, described Lawler as a tribune of the people, albeit one who nonetheless represented a more radical agrarian path to Irish independence than Gavin Duffy and his often gentlemanly liberal comrades. Shortly before his immigration to Australia, Gavin Duffy had been returned to the British Parliament on a tenant rights platform, which sought a more moderate intervention in the landlord-tenant relationship through the regulation of rents, improved security of tenure, and the possibility of tenants selling their interest in the land. But from the long grass was coming more than whispers of another tradition in agrarian impressed, one that would define the difference in emphasis in turn and the experience of Michael David and Charles Stuart Parnell, and which would indeed divide the Parnell family. And there's another irony of history, too, in Gavin Duffy's ascent to electoral power and influence. It was partly through the efforts of the Ballarat Reform League of English, Scottish and Welsh Chartists, German and Italian veterans of the springtime of the peoples, Victorians of all ancestries and Irish miners led by Peter Lawler, that male suffrage was extended in the state of Victoria. Gavin Duffy quickly took up the cause of the workers in the goldfields, the urban democrat in Melbourne and the small landholder. And as Minister of Lands in the administration of the more conservative John O'Shaughnessy introduced a land act in 1862. This was incidentally the year my grandfather's brother, Patrick Higgins, came on the Montmorency with his sister Mary Ann and began work as a ploughman and later as a farm manager. This Land Act of 1862 proved to be the first and last practical exercise of legislative drafting by your great ancestor, academically, William Hearn. The Act intended to allow the selection of good, cheap land by new proprietors willing to cultivate the soil, and it achieved the precise opposite, 
due to deficiencies in its drafting, as pastoralists were able to exploit the legislation by establishing fronts to acquire land. This did not prevent, as Patrick O'Farrell reminds us, the burnishing of Gavin O'Duffy's already heroic reputation in Ireland, as Australia in the, 19, in the 1860s in Ireland was presented as a rural idyll, and his land debt was presented as a land charter for the Irish. Then, in the same period, the doomed expedition of another Irish immigrant to Victoria, Robert O'Hara Burke, came in another way to symbolise the new Irish spirit, as it was described, in Australia, which was, in the words of the Cork Examiner, opening up continents for the sons and daughters of Ireland, far away from the grasp of the rack-renting landlord, the griping agent and the selfish middleman. Gavin Duffy's Land Act and the Selection Acts of the other colonies were, unlike the ideas of the young islanders of Finton Lorna, not a deviation from or even any outright defiance to the strictures of political economy of the time. They rested partly on the basic assumption of a superabundance of land that was held by the Crown. They rested, in other words, on the brutal political economy of primitive accumulation, on the fiction of terra nullius, with all its original and evolving negative assumptions as to the essence, dignity, and capacity of first caretakers. Those were seen as being very distant from moral concerns. In contemporary writing on Australia, I sense distance is sometimes adduced as explanation for failures of, in communication, knowledge of Australian past or present on the part of some others, some other Europeans. But may I suggest that distance can be an advantage if it facilitates independent intellectual work. There is, I want to suggest, something important in the contemporary intellectual distance between Australia and Europe, between the new and the old world, and increasingly in the proximity to Asia, which allows for an independence of thought, possibilities and opportunities, a willingness to break with orthodoxies, a dedication to fostering quite new modes of thought, and a commitment above all else to pluralist discourse. These are qualities which are required now more than ever as the global challenges of this current century, climate change, the resurgence of xenophobia and racism, the growing inequality in wealth, power and opportunity, the destructive consequences of social cohesion being made, uh, being made vulnerable, will not be solved with policies that are, after all, designed to address the challenges of the past. As to William Hearn, he was not a heterodox thinker. One of his first papers was entitled on the coincidence of general and individual and in general interests. And in many days, in many ways, so many ways, his ideas were formed by the great famine in Ireland rather than Australia. But he was part of an extraordinary generation of Irish political economists who pursued quite different intellectual agendas, who are evidence, really, of the existence at the time of a pluralism of economic discourse. For example, John Eliot Cairns remained a faithful disciple of Smith, the Adam Smith of the wealth of nations, as well as Ricardo, Malthus and John Stuart Mill to the last, often defending doctrines which Mill, a close friend, had renounced. 
Thomas Cliff Leslie applied the comparative theories of jurisprudence developed by Henry Maine to political economy, arguing against reasoning from a small number of a priori assumptions and for an inductive approach to economic analysis, sensitive to the unique historical development of each society. John Kells Ingram, heavily influenced by the positivist philosophy of Auguste Comte, sought to subordinate the study of economic relations to sociology, breaking down the distinction between the economic and other forms of social life. In all of this, we see the outlines, too, of the battle as to method in economics, which so engaged Irish, British and German political economists in the late 19th and early 20th century. This is a battle that had its value. Today, a debate that distinguished between the efficacy of instruments, the adequacy of a method, and the assumptions of a theory, would surely serve political economy and its publics well. After all, a vulgar rejection of all economics, and indeed economists, is hardly helpful to anybody. But alternatively, teasing out the issues and assumptions of different approaches and of models is a valuable part, I suggest, of participatory citizenship. Conducted across and within the changing national borders of the time, in English and in German, the, the late 19th, early 20th century, methodological debate to which I've referred, shared a common theme, namely the rejection of a deductive reasoning from a small number of a priori assumptions, which characterize Ricardian classical political economy. With this rejection came a rejection of the formulation of theories of distribution, production, consumption, and exchange. Based on a number of universal axioms, in its place, economists such as Cliff Leslie and Kels Ingram, and in Germany, a group led by Gustav Schmuller, proposed that there were, proposed there were no self-evident natural laws of economics, but only such conclusions as could be drawn from the accumulation of historical studies. We can also glimpse another great struggle from this time, namely one that occurred between the classical political economy, championed by Cairns, and the outlines of neoclassical economics, which was arguably, at least in part, presaged by William Herden's work, Plutology. My former colleague at the National University of Ireland, Galway, Tom Boylan, and the Australian economist Gregory Moore have both argued that this work, Plutology, published here in Melbourne, inspired what came to be termed the marginalist revolution in economics. In short, classical political economists such as Mill and Ricardo had accepted that value and in the long run the determination of prices should reflect the cost of production of a good, including the labour used in the production of that good or service. This objective theory of value was replaced by a subjective theory of value, which postulated that there was no inherent value in goods, but only that which results from the relative importance placed on such goods by individuals seeking to satisfy their needs. This framework had at its heart, as its subject, a utility-maximising individual subject to diminishing marginal returns and constrained by scarcity of resources. And from such foundations, it was possible, it was suggested, to derive the values of factors of production, goods and services. This reshaped the discipline of economics, so that by 1935, Lionel Robbins, later Lord Robbins, could define economics as the science which studies human behaviour 
as a relationship between ends and scarce means which have alternative uses. Gone were the historical economists with alternative moral frameworks, such as Ingram and Leslie. And gone, too, were the classical political economists, to be subsumed as the new footnotes in the development of neoclassical economics, and indeed now largely missing entirely from the teaching of economics in the contemporary university. I do not wish to criticise the specifics of the dominant neoclassical economics of today. Time does not allow and I've used enough of it, but it would be easy to get lost in definitions and debates about what may in the end be minutiae. But only I want to note that the discipline of economics was not so dominated as I've described it by a single methodology in the past, as it is today and with consequences. I do want to stress the significance as well of some variance to this, Eminent scholars currently working in the field, such as Joseph Stiglitz and Amartya Sen, are continuing to pursue a research programme which, while accepting the underlying assumptions in neoclassical economics, have nevertheless, en passant, undermined some of the central claims once advanced by the fundamentalists, such as, for example, the assumption of a narrow rationality on the part of individuals, or the assumption, indeed, of market efficiency. Economists, while still taking as their starting point that the competitive market as the most efficient institution for allocating resources, now increasingly recognise that markets are characterised by profound and what are reasoned within their own terms, inefficiencies. I know that this has perhaps become a truism at this point, but it is important to acknowledge nonetheless. Indeed, it was the late great Kenneth Arrow who did so much to develop general equilibrium theory giving a mathematical proof to the intuition of the protagonist of the marginal revolution, that given a certain set of assumptions, there will be a set of prices across multiple markets, such that the aggregate supply equals the aggregate demand. It was he who noted, I quote, the model is a fair world of total self-interest, would not survive for 10 minutes. Its actual working depends upon an intricate network of reciprocal obligations, even among competing firms and individuals. This observation, with its less than tacit appeal for humility, should remind us that there is at times a sharp distinction between the development of neoclassical economic theory and its application by economic policymakers and the consequences. There is at times a sharp distinction between the academic programme of neoclassical economics and a theory of government which seeks to validate itself by claims to economic theory to conflate in imitation of some of the classical political economists, assumed mutable laws of nature with a prosaic practice of what is, after all, economic policy. I speak, of course, of the philosophy of government popularly referred to as termed neoliberalism. This was initially a term used by a small group of radical economic thinkers, including Friedrich van Hayek and later Milton Friedman to describe their own distinctive economic and social philosophy at a time when the governments of both right and left had cleaved to the consensus of the Keynesian welfare state and the importance of the state. Neoliberalism is now widely accepted to describe a theory of politics which postulates a wholly economic theory of human nature. 
universalizing as it does beyond previous boundaries the necessary simplifying assumptions of neoclassical economics, suggesting even that human beings are rational utility maximizers in a manner that can, should, can and should encompass all human activities. Its ethics rests on the liberal principle that people should be left to do as they will, how they will. And such views are not uncommon today. The political theorist Daniel Finlayson has suggested that following these two principles, price is viewed as the key mechanism in transmitting information, enabling rational individuals to make decisions and allocate resources. Following this, effective competition and competitive exchange is required for prices to be accurate. Finally, Findlayson argues that due to these principles, neoliberals do not hold a concept of the common good in politics, as they fear that government will act on a set of principles dictated by the common good, which will in turn distort rational individual freedom. We cannot continue to avoid the collision that is there morally in some such assumptions. Now, recent work, such as that of Dr. Mariana Mazzucato, The Entrepreneurial State, powerfully critiques this under-labourer theory of the state. The starting point of neoclassical economics does remain, I suggest, questionable as to its method and its epistemology, in its sharp distinction between economic life on one hand, open to economic analysis, and other forms of social life which are subject to other types of forces. I think, too, as one describes the work of those whom the Irish political economists to whom I've made reference, one is struck by the breadth of their vision, of their capacity to range across and integrate a broad range of academic disciplines. For those of the historical school, this was a necessity born of their inductive methodology. Yet it also reflects something broader. Herden's first assignment to this university was as chair of modern history and literature, political economy and logic. And as the Chancellor was pointing out to me, because one of the other four founding professors had died on the way, he also had to undertake mathematics. <laughs> I found a, an echo uh, of some years ago of such generous broad scholarship in a debate I read here from here in, in Australia and in New Zealand between the distinguished cultural economist, Professor David Thrisby, and the late wonderful Dr. Michael Volkeling on cultural economics. It is a debate I drew on when I was minister, indeed, for arts, culture and the Gaeltacht between 1993 and 97. And it was a debate I recommended to other European culture ministers when I was president of the Council of Culture Ministers in 1996. Professor Trosby had suggested that the epistemological basis of economics is inherently based on individualism. Culture, on the other hand, was social in its assumptions and thus irreconcilable with economics. Professor Michael Volkeling disputed this and Dr. Volkeling suggested that the public discourse of economics, by which I mean an explicitly neoliberal discourse, and its underlying assumption of self-interested behaviour that had developed such strength of support during the 1980s and 90s, shaped rather than revealed a new spirit of selfishness, as he put it. He suggested correctly, in my view, that culture and economics should not be envisioned as antagonistic, as a clash of the collective impulse with the individual impulse, but rather that economics should best be considered as a cultural discourse itself in terms of both its origins and its application. 
This is not only because of the origins of political economy in the broad frame of discourse I have described, such as the early Enlightenment writings of Adam Smith, who proposed, we recall, sympathy with other humans as the driving motivation for human actions, and who, as the Irish political economists remind us, used historical experience as a guide, but also because of economic shares with other forms of intellectual practice, a cultural purpose, a shared and similar purpose, that of seeking to represent and, dare I say, enhance real life. The conclusion of Dr. Vaughling may be summarised by saying that culture must not ever be seen as some residual of living experience, as it were an uncolonised space and time, but rather should be considered as a framework for thought and practice, and that it could help economics recover its moral and social strength. Keen to integrate new findings in related disciplines, achieving a result that would offer a plurality of policy suggestions. The question, then, of that debate between the great economists of the day remains. Can we integrate and facilitate new perspectives or recover old ones in the contemporary period? Is the economics which is being taught at third level sufficient at the present moment? Have we replaced questions of methodology with a restrictive focus on forms of measurement? Can we lift economics out of the narrow ideological framework in which it is presented in these times? Can such questions find a space within contemporary economic discourse. Indeed, as I wrote this, as wrote, are such questions to be allowed at all in an atmosphere that too regularly comes close to anti-intellectualism and is simply reflecting a bad-tempered intolerance of opposing critical thought? May I suggest that the outcomes of how we answer these questions will be tested in two areas. The first is in the area of teaching, research agendas and university curricula, particularly in the realm and domain of the academic economics. Since the global financial crisis, there have been demands for a new curriculum from both teachers and students, a curriculum which might more closely represent and which could more adequately critique and describe the social and economic world which we inhibit, which they inhabit, and which many of them are seeking to change. A significant result, of course, to emerge from this concern is the proposed new introductory curriculum, the Curriculum Open Access Resources in Economics, or CORE project, which is an initiative of economists Wendy Carlin, Marcus Stevens, Oscar Landrecke, and Sam Bowles. Their proposed textbook, The Economy, which fully recognises the title as a social construct in itself, but it provides as its starting point an account of the effects of the Industrial Revolution, the development of capitalist institutions, their changes and forms, the impact of climate change, the measurement of economic equality. Its bibliography is capacious and generous. It includes Angus Deaton and William Nortas, Carol Palanyi and Morris Dobb. Yet the proposed curriculum does not shirk the mathematical rigour of neoclassical economics, as students are still required to understand the calculus traditionally deployed in microeconomics to explain marginalist concepts such as indifference curves. The promise of this initiative, others like it, is the replacement of the simple nostrums of what is referred to in North American universities as Economics 101 which commences its teaching of the subject at perfect competition, leaving students with a desiccated and inaccurate picture of economic life. 
over time what I've described, it will, I hope, open up quite new research agendas, as those students who will take the new curriculum continue on to graduate studies, to teaching and to the research. As to the second area, the public sphere, I wish I could be more optimistic about the prospects in the short term for the integration of a new pluralist discourse in the public sphere. The rhetoric of neoliberalism, the elevation of individual self-interest and even selfishness to an almost moral certainty, the disdain for a language of the common good and public purpose, and which at times produces a near contempt for those who fall behind, remains as a rhetoric even more pervasive than its policy prescriptions. If there is a glimmer of hope, maybe, it is in the fact that some international institutions experiencing a crisis of self-belief, such as the International Monetary Fund, which once advocated characteristic neoliberal policies, such as the liberalization without regulation of capital flows, deregulation, creation of financial markets, and fiscal consolidation in all circumstances, have now begun to question these once sacrosanct policy positions and the assumptions which underlay them. There is now an urgency, may I suggest, to contest what remains as unhelpful entrenched ideas of a failing paradigm of thought. The challenges of the next decade simply cannot be met with the shibboleth from the old orthodoxies. Social cohesion is fracturing, fading, as inequalities in wealth, power and income are deepening, as labour becomes more precarious, and our societies become increasingly divided between what is often lazily described as the looky and the left out, those on the street and those behind gated communities, between those who can access highly paid employment and those left to struggle on zero-hour contracts. Within the European Union, cohesion between the member states has declined to create a problem of connection, of legitimacy with the European street, as we have allowed ourselves to become divided by a common one-size-fits-all macroeconomic policy framework which pits creditor against debtor, those with trade surpluses against those without, those in the north against those in the south. How should we meet these challenges? I suggest that in this century, fiscal and economic literacy may be as important to cohesion that I've been describing as under threat, may be so important to cohesion, citizenship and democracy itself as mass literacy was in previous centuries to universal suffrage, parliamentary democracy, and the sovereignty of the people. Armed with a critical and inquiring economics, one that does not tolerate poverty amidst plenty without question, citizens can begin to question the current dispensation and begin to imagine a quite different future than that which is so often presented as inevitable. If William Hearn felt a moral implant, a moral impulse, as indeed he did when he came here, drawn from a wide perspective in scholarship to address the issues of his day, new challenges. Surely those gifted today with the opportunity to do so might benefit from following his example in our urgent times of change and help recover the rich possibilities of political economy and the prospect of better, more inclusive, sustainable policies for all our citizens in an ever more fragile world. Thank you for listening to me.